Well, it is the first Sunday of Advent, and so it's now time for my yearly public service announcement that if you would like, it will now be acceptable for you to put up your Christmas tree and the lights around your house and any other decorations that uh, you might have. It's now okay. If you would like to start listening to Christmas music, you may now do so. Uh, although I wouldn't blame you if you want to wait a little bit longer or maybe never start. Um, that, that's up to you. It's now okay. And if you've done these things already, there will be a time of confession and repentance at the end of the service today. Uh, I'm, I'm joking, of course. And actually, if I'm honest with you, our Christmas decorations went up this last week. And probably by the time you see this, our Christmas tree will also be up in our house and we'll enjoy that. But I have uh, seem to have developed a bit of a reputation uh, over the years as someone who doesn't like Christmas. Now, some of that is just boils down to the fact that, you know, for instance, Christmas music is just not my favorite genre of music. There's some good Christmas songs and, and some that I enjoy, but it's kind of like country music. I mean, I could listen to it, but why would I want to do that? I'm just trying to offend as many of you as possible. Um, but uh, so, some things about Christmas just don't seem to excite me as much as other people. And so I've been trying to think about why. And you know how as you get older, you hopefully develop some more self-awareness? Um, one of the things that I've been become more aware about this year, and when I tell you this, you're going to all be like, we all know this about you already. You're just realizing this now, uh, is that sometimes I can be a bit of a contrarian. Uh, I can hold to a firm opinion on something that doesn't really matter, uh, but that's not really a popular opinion. And sometimes people wonder if it's just for the sake of arguing and whether I just find joy in taking that kind of contrarian position. And so I've realized that about myself, and I've started to think to myself, what is it about Christmas? Is it just me trying to be a contrarian that I don't get as excited as the next person about Christmas? Am I just enjoying the fact that other people don't get why I wouldn't like Christmas as much as they do? And so I've started to really think about it. What is it about this time of year that gets other people really excited, but doesn't necessarily get me as excited? Is it just a surface level thing or is there something deeper behind it? And so that's what I want to explore this morning. Maybe this will read a little like my diary, and I'm inviting you into my own personal thoughts. Um, but I think we're going to arrive somewhere here that'll help us appreciate this season in a deeper sort of way than maybe we have before. One of the words that came to mind as I thought about why I don't necessarily gravitate to the Christmas season this, this in the same way as other people is that sometimes the way that we celebrate Christmas feels uninspiring to me. It's uninspiring. What do I mean by that? I mean that there's all of these proclamations of festivity and joy, and yet to me, it can feel like cheap sentimentality or a fake kind of joy that actually doesn't get to the place where I live, that doesn't go deep enough to really mean something profound, at least for me. Um, I feel like sometimes the way that we celebrate Christmas is an inch deep and a mile wide. It's shallow. Uh, it, it doesn't go far enough. Um, I felt a, a special cognitive dissonance in the last couple of weeks. I'll give you an example of, of, of one way in which this realization kind of came home to me in a different way. So if you were to, to leave the church building and drive south on Ross Road to cross Fraser Highway, keep driving south on Ross Road, you're driving towards my house. 
Now, on Ross Road, you go down a hill and then you come up. And right at the crest of the hill, if you were to look to the east, there is a, a beautiful view. There's a field that kind of drops off. There's a, there's a fence along the road. And, and then beyond all of that, there's one of my favorite views, actually. I'd love to have it uh, on, a, on a canvas in my house, actually. The, the mountains on a clear uh, fall day, the mountains are jutting up against the sky and you can see all of the detail the, on the, the northeast there's Sumas Mountain, and then way off in the southeast, there's Mount Baker, and it's just a, a spectacular kind of view. So usually when I'm driving by, I'll look off to my left when I'm driving south and, and see this view. And so it was last Wednesday or Thursday, it was a brilliantly sunny day, and I looked out and I saw this view that I appreciate so much. But I also had the awareness that just out of view, just down the hill over the trees, was all of the devastating flooding that was going on. And I thought of people who I know, people that we know, who had been driven from their homes or, or left with whatever they could grab and weren't sure what state their house was in. I, I thought because of my background in, in poultry farming, I thought about those farms and those chicken barns that are six or eight feet underwater. And, and I had some sort of understanding about what that's going to take to to clean out and to refurbish all of these barns. Like it's a, it's a massive deal. And then to think about the impact on the industry, there's so many dominoes that are now affected by this. And, and then I thought that's just one industry that's represented down there. There's all kinds of other industry and other kinds of, of farming that happens down there. And that's not to mention all the people who, who their houses are, are ruined and they didn't have flood insurance because of where they lived. And it just was sobering. And so this beautiful view that I could see was masking the fact that there is this great devastation right in our backyard, 10 minutes away. Sometimes when there's natural disasters around the world, we can separate ourselves from them because it's way over there and, and it's not close and maybe we shouldn't do that, but we can. And, and this one was right in our backyard. So I continued driving that day and I turned into my neighborhood and what do I see? But I see uh, these uh, Christmas light companies putting Christmas lights on people's houses and I drove through my neighborhood later that night after it was dark and all these houses were lit up with these Christmas lights and people had their, their decorations out and, you know, blow up Santa Claus and, and inflatable this and, and all this kind of stuff out that was supposed to bring this kind of festiveness to the atmosphere, supposed to lighten our spirits and bring joy to us. And it just felt so out of place when I knew that 10 minutes away was such great suffering. It just felt cheap, felt kind of wrong actually to have this kind of way that we celebrate, this kind of fake joy. And so I think that's, that's kind of deep down part of how I feel about Christmas sometimes. The, the things that we do and the, the ways in which we celebrate don't actually go deep enough to, to reach the real places where we live. It, it's just a distraction sometimes from the difficulty in life. And we as Christians don't necessarily do much better. Sometimes we do things that I, uh, they're well-intentioned, but it's never really helped me grow closer to Jesus. So we'll say things like, well, a candy cane is in the, the, the shape of a shepherd's staff. And that reminds us of the Christmas story. And, you know, that's true and that's kind of neat, but it's never really drawn me closer to Jesus to think about that. Or we'll say we give gifts to each other because the wise men brought gifts to Jesus. And I think, well, that's kind of different <laughs> 
And does it really excuse the commercialism that happens at this time of year? I read the other day that the value of unwanted Christmas presents this year is going to be $15 billion. Like, can we not think of a better way to spend $15 billion? I don't want to make this about commercialism because we could go there, but that's not really what this is about. Sometimes the things we do as Christmas, as Christians to try to bring meaning to this season just don't seem very deep to me either. And yet, it should be a profound time of year because the birth of Jesus is something that we ought to celebrate. So how, how am I supposed to reconcile these things? Well, enter in the season of Advent and enter in uh, a person and a tradition that I've started to learn about in the last few years. A few years ago, I ordered a book on Advent uh, called Advent, the Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ by Fleming Rutledge. Fleming Rutledge is an Episcopalian priest. She's in her 80s now, and for decades she has preached about Advent. And she collected all of these sermons and put them in a book. And uh, she says things about Advent that I think are deeply profound. And her tradition celebrates Advent in a totally different way than we do. And I don't think we really appreciate Advent for what it is. So what I want to do today is to present some of what I've learned from there, along with the accompanying scriptures, that will hopefully help us to position ourselves to experience Advent and the light of Christ breaking into our world in a radically different way than we ever have before. So one of the things that the Episcopalians realize is that in the liturgical church calendar, which we in evangelical churches sometimes don't pay a lot of attention to the liturgical church calendar, But the liturgical church year actually begins with Advent. So we could say to each other, Happy New Year today, because this is the beginning of the church year, this season of Advent before Christ is born. This tradition then will actually celebrate the 12 days of Christmas, beginning on Christmas, and end this season on January 6th, which um, is Epiphany, the day that they celebrate the wise men's arrival to visit Jesus as a small child. One of the things that the Episcopalian tradition does that I think is very different, well, it is very different than what we do, and I think is pretty profound, is they refuse to decorate. They will not put up Christmas lights, they will not put up their Christmas trees, they will not hang their stockings until Christmas Eve. And then they will celebrate 12 days of Christmas. Now, are they just being like the Grinch? Or is there something profound? Well, there's actually a meaning behind it. And the meaning is that they want to truly celebrate the inbreaking light of Christ into our world. That, that Jesus' light exploded into our world with the birth of Jesus. But they don't want to, to minimize the darkness out of which Christ exploded. They actually want to sit in that period of time of of waiting and of darkness before they celebrate that the light has come. This is very different than us. We, We actually, I think sometimes with all of the lights and the things that we do at Christmas, try to live in a state of perpetual hope and joy that lasts, you know, forever. And I think maybe it serves as a distraction of some of the difficult realities in our world that Christ actually came to address. To actually sit with the difficulty of the world and the darkness actually requires us to be uncomfortable, to ask some hard questions of God, 
to lament. And we get to the point where we cry out, come Lord Jesus, I desperately need you. And so they don't decorate before Christmas as one way to express this, this tension between the darkness and the coming of the light. So our main idea today is just this. Advent begins in the dark and ends with the light of Christ. Advent begins in the, in the dark and ends with the light of Christ. Fleming Rutledge writes this, Advent is the season for reflection upon these matters. There is more dissonance in the church's message at this time of year than any other, even in Lent, I think, because the contrast between the authentic Christian gospel on the one hand and sentimental religious holiday religiosity on the other hand is never sharper than during this season. More than at any other time in the church's calendar, Advent forces us to look at the dark side of ourselves. Or uh, to take this poem as an illustration. Rutledge brings this up in her book. There was a poem that was written by W.H. Auden. It's called September 1st, 1939. It was written at the outset of World War II. And this is what uh, the poem says. And the poem actually does a really good job of capturing the universal human tendency to cover up our unease and estrangement and sentiment, sentimentality and denial. We try to cover those things up. This is the poem. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. All of the conventions conspire to make this form assume the furniture of home lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night, who have never been happy or good. <laughs> what a powerful poem. Think about that at the outset of World War II, people pretending like nothing was wrong. And to apply that to Advent means that in this period of time, with all of the ways in which we try to produce this kind of sentimentality, we can pretend like there's nothing wrong. And that actually cheapens the celebration of Christmas. It actually cheapens the celebration of the birth of Christ because Christ came because something was deeply wrong. So Advent helps us to reflect on these matters. So I want to present to us three themes of Advent, of Advent three things that will help us to uh, celebrate this season well, to observe this season well. The first one uh, is what I've already said, that Advent begins in the dark. It, it, it begins with recognizing the pain of the world. It, it doesn't sugarcoat the realities of doubt and discouragement and betrayal and pain and relational conflict. It doesn't negate or, or downplay the, the chaos of floods and heat domes and COVID-19. It, it takes into account all of those things. In fact, it reflects on those things quite intentionally. Because hope is not really hope until it's known why hope is needed. Right? If you if, think about a, a child afraid in, in their bedroom at night because it's dark, what do they cry? They say, can you turn on more lights? Can we make it brighter in here? Because the darkness is overwhelming. It's scary. Well, a child in the middle of the day doesn't say those things because there's no darkness around. It's already light. And I think we actually do ourselves a disservice at Christmas time when we we actually pretend like the lights are already on when there's actually some darkness that needs to be acknowledged. Uh, here's a couple of scriptures that, that, that help us understand this. The first is Isaiah 9. 
It's a common passage that you hear at Christmas time, and it's actually quite hopeful, but I want you to hear where the hope emerges from. Isaiah 9, starting in verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So there is a light that is coming that will break into the world, but where does it break into? It breaks into and onto a people who are walking in darkness. It breaks into a land of deep darkness, a place where there is war and conflict and suffering. This is where that light dawns. Or Isaiah 60, starting in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, all from Sheba will come. Some think this is a reference to the wise men, by the way. All from Sheba will come bringing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. So light is going to come and goodness is going to follow, but it comes to a people living in darkness. One Episcopalian church has this on their website. While it is difficult to keep in mind in the midst of holiday celebrations, shopping, lights, and decorations, and joyful carols, Advent is intended to be a season of fasting, much like Lent. And there are a variety of ways that this time of mourning works itself out in this season. Reflection on the violence and the evil in the world makes us look forward to our future exodus. And our own sinfulness and need for grace leads us to pray for the Holy Spirit to renew his work in conforming us into the image of Christ. Have you ever considered Advent to be a time of mourning and fasting? Uh, there's something that um, Jim, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, talks about. He calls it the Stockdale Paradox. Uh, This refers to a a man, his name is Jim Stockdale. He was an American vice admiral who was captured and tortured for seven years in the Vietnam War. And he came out the other side relatively strong, even though many other Americans had been captured and also tortured and lost their lives. They died. And so he he was asked the question, what what helped you to survive through that terrible time? And, And what was the difference between you and other people And one of the specific questions he was asked was, who died first? 
Do you know what he said? He said the optimists died first. The optimists died first. They were the ones who were always saying, we're going to be out of here by Christmas. He said, but then Christmas would come and Christmas would go and another Christmas would arrive. He said, they died of a broken heart. Instead, he says, this is the important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end and you can never afford to lose that with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. And he said, for me, that was the idea that we're not going to be out of here by Christmas. So in our, our rush to get to Christmas, in our rush to get to a, a cheery kind of optimism, let us not lose sight of the situation that we're in. In fact, if you have a faith that is not deep enough to, to cover and understand some of the difficulty that's going on in our world, then it actually is a faith that won't last because our world is a dark place. And we must reflect on the challenges that we face if the joy of Christmas is going to be especially meaningful to us. So Advent begins in the dark and a recognition that we live in a dark place. Secondly, Advent is a time for repentance and reflection upon God's judgment. It's a time for repentance and reflection upon God's judgment. If Advent truly begins in the dark, then one of the things we need to do is to look inward and see, is there any darkness in me that needs to be dealt with? Is there any sin within me that I need to bring out into God's light? And it actually should confront our society to say, is this the time when you need to repent of your sin and turn to Christ and put your faith in him? Because there is a judgment coming. This is a message that our world doesn't really like to hear very much. And yet one that we can't ignore. I mean, think about John the Baptist. His job was to prepare the way for Jesus. So how did he tell people to anticipate the coming of Jesus? Well, he said this in John 3, starting in verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Then in verse 11, John continues, I baptize with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We, we typically don't think of the judgment of God in Advent. And yet when we read about why Christ came, we read this in, in John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And we put that next to John chapter 9, where Jesus says this, he says, For judgment I have come into this world, so the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. So Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but he did come to bring judgment. And we understand through the scriptures that there will be a final judgment, where we will stand before God and have to give account for our lives in the decisions we made about where we would put our faith. Advent is a time to reflect on this kind of sobering reality. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. We light these candles and uh, we talk about the shepherd's candle and the prophet's candle, or sometimes we, we talk about them uh, symbolizing hope and joy and peace and love. 
Um, did you know that in the medieval church, the four themes that they studied in the weeks leading up to Christmas were actually death, judgment, heaven, and hell? Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Can you imagine that as an Advent series? Maybe we'll do it next year. Um, like think about the difference that, that that produces in us if these are the things that we're reflecting on. Rutledge says, hope is certainly a central key to the meaning of Advent, but hope is a very meager concept, if not measured against the malevolence and godlessness of the forces that assail the creation and its creatures every day in the present age. We are in a spiritual battle. And we need to reflect on that reality as we go through this season. Because then the birth of Christ represents our freedom and our strength. So Advent begins in the dark. Advent's also a time for preparation, repentance, and reflection upon God's judgment. Finally, Advent is a time of anticipation and waiting. Advent is a time of anticipation and waiting. It's been said that Advent is the church's response to Amazon. <laughs> we, we don't wait for anything anymore. Um, so Jenny and I at home have a dishwasher that's giving us uh, some problems. There's a, a high-level water sensor that's shot. Now there's a backup sensor so we can still run the dishwasher. But every time it's almost near the end, it starts beeping at us and gives us a little error message. And we have to go flip the breaker if we want to go use the dishwasher again. So we called the appliance repair guy and he came in and he explained everything that I just told you. And he said, I'll order the part for you, $80. So, yep, go ahead, do that. He called us a couple days later. He says, I've been calling around trying to find this part and I can't find it anywhere. So I have to order it. And it's going to come in March. I said, in March? <laughs> like, do they have to build a mine to extract the material from the earth first? Like, why do you have to wait till March? We don't wait till March for anything. Usually you can order something and it comes the next day. Right? We're just uncomfortable with this idea of waiting these days. Everything is instant and yet... Advent reminds us that waiting is a part of Christian discipleship. That we are still waiting for the second coming of Jesus. People have often said, Advent is a time of pre preparing your heart. That's another one of those Christian phrases that we use at Christmas that I've never really been sure of. What does it actually mean? Like, how do I prepare my heart? And how do I prepare my heart for something that happened 2,000 years ago? I mean, I guess I'm preparing for the celebration of that event. But actually, Advent in some traditions has a little bit to do with the coming of Jesus the first time, but actually has more to do with reflection on the present and looking forward to the future, to when Jesus will come again. And that builds anticipation because if Advent begins in the dark and includes themes of judgment and repentance, reflecting on the second coming of Jesus fills with anticipation and hope and true joy because we know we're going to escape the darkness of this world. That Christ is going to come again and make all things right. That just as Christ came the first time and his light burst into a dark world and gives us so much hope and joy in the present, that, that that reality is going to happen again to an even greater degree and will last for all eternity. That gives us anticipation and hope. Think about these passages, Romans 8, 18. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This is what we wait for. Or Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Or think about Philippians starting uh, chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This anticipation and this waiting leads us to say, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. This is what we pray in Advent as we wait. So Rutledge says the disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension. I love that phrase. Dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. And it is in this Advent tension that the church lives its life. This is where we are. So these are the three themes of Advent that I want to encourage us to take seriously this Advent season. Advent begins in the dark with a reflection on the darkness of this world. Advent is a time for repentance and reflection on God's judgment. And Advent is a time for waiting and anticipation of the second coming of Christ. So what am I asking you to do as we wrap up? I'm not asking you to take your Christmas tree down and take your lights down. Uh, You don't need to do that. Uh, I'm not asking you to go around with a frown on your face all the way through Advent like you're miserable. No, please enjoy this season of time. But I am inviting you to reflect on this season in maybe a way that you haven't done before. Maybe to incorporate some things into your routine that remind you of these things. Maybe you need to, to take on the Advent devotional from the seminary that we promoted earlier. Uh, maybe you need to take on a different kind of, of practice so, so for me, this is what it's going to look like for me. And you don't have to do the same thing as I do. But if Advent is actually supposed to be a time of fasting, uh, I'm actually going to take that practice on through, through, Lent, uh, through Advent rather this year. We usually think of fasting in Lent. I'm going to take that on in Advent. So what it's going to mean for me is I'm going to do a 24-hour fast every week from Wednesday after dinner till Thursday dinner. And I'm going to invite the Spirit in that time to, rem- to, to use my physical hunger to remind me of the brokenness in the world, the, the hunger in this world for Christ's peace and his joy and his hope. And hung- uh, uh, fasting is often used to remind us, our, our physical hunger is used to remind ourselves of our spiritual hunger for God. And I'm going to ask God to use those hunger pains to remind me of how all creation is groaning for Christ to return and to set all things right. So maybe that's something you want to do with me. If you're going to do it, make sure you're healthy enough to do it. Make sure you drink a lot if you're going to fast. But maybe it's giving up something else, or maybe it's taking a a specific time every day to actually fall on your knees in repentance rather than to put up more decorations, maybe. So in this Advent season, I'm inviting you to ask the Holy Spirit what it's going to look like to you to truly do the work that's required of you so that when we get to Christmas Eve and when we celebrate the birth of Christ and the light of God bursting into our world, it's truly a meaningful and profound thing for us as individuals and for us as a church community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the light 
of Jesus. Thank you for the ways in which you have shown your love to us through the, the entrance of Christ into our world. Father, help us not to go through this Advent season uh, without truly doing the work that you want us to do. Help us to reflect uh, on the brokenness in the world and in ourselves and to invite your spirit to work through us to, to bring uh, healing, to bring more light into our souls and into our world. We, we invite you to do the work that you want to do in us as we give ourselves to you. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.